Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome listeners and mates. Do I have two old Time Ready episodes remastered and enhanced for your lovely ears? Crime doesn't pay. We all know that. Well, sometimes the life of crime is just too hard to shake. And in our first story regarding the tartan scarf, well, let's just say crime has a way of wrapping itself around the neck of the unsuspecting. And not all Old Time Ready episodes have a happy or sad ending. In fact, sometimes the harsh reality really hits home regarding the legal system in four small bottles where even justice can be eluded. So my lovelies, I'm back from my mini Monday break, having ate a lot of food, goodness, and watched so many different kinds of films. We even ended up watching the old sitcom, The Nanny, of all things. It was great. Niles's wit is always gold. Today, folks, I'm drinking something different. Black Tea, 1837, by TWG. Let's read the description. 1837 Black is a unique blend of black tea with notes of fruits and flowers from the Bermuda Triangle, which leaves a lingering aftertaste of ripe berries, anise, and caramel. A timeless classic. I'll have to make sure after drinking this that I keep track of where I'm going. This is one of my favorites though. Check it out for yourself when you get a chance. Now before we start, I want to thank my Ode Night Tea Titans, Matthew J. Bauer, aka Detective Thrice. Known for his keen attention to detail, Thrice has caught each criminal just before they finished their criminal act. From burglary, heist, and hostage situations, when they want something done, not once, not twice. You guessed it, they call him Thrice. Maya Miss Meteor. No one saw her coming down Ebony Lane. Certainly the crooks didn't. Maya is dubbed Miss Meteor, who always brings with her an outstanding entrance. Extremely intelligent, Miss Meteor actually waits for the criminals to begin their act to then smash their plans, literally, to pieces. Sure, there's a lot of collateral damage, but that's the price you pay for solving the case. Mates, because of you two, the improvements keep coming. Thank you so much for helping the podcast perfect the art. In today's episode, I've been able to spend more time with better software tools to streamline a lot of the major issues in today's remastering episode. Wouldn't be possible without your support. Simply put, thank you so much. And my two lovelies, that are my white tea warlords. I own cows, Captain Hoof. The buck stops with this one. There hasn't been a criminal that escapes his grasp since he was a rookie. As they say, don't mess with the horns. And Lee Bauer, Lieutenant Fisticuffs. One quick jab and this man has you grounded. Fisticuffs is the backup that everyone wished they had. And when they call him in, rest assured you are in safe hands. Thank you both as always. Your support is helping me reach more people and for that I am grateful. And of course, my Earl Grey enforcers, Chad Warren, Joss Heather, Lorraine Crisanto, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Robert Fisher, and Tasha Moncrief. Thank you all for being the lifeblood of this 
podcast. You're fantastic. Now get cozy with me, turn up the radio, and let's listen to an old-time show with Orson Welles. This is Orson Welles, speaking from London. Black Museum, a museum of death. Yes, here in the grim stone structure on the Thames which houses Scotland Yard is a warehouse of homicide, where everyday objects, a fountain pen, a cufflink, a high-heeled shoe, all are touched by murder. Now here's a scar. Torn and ragged, the faded tartan, a cheap reproduction of the honorable colors of the Stuarts, red with green blue crossings and a double over check of white and yellow. This scarf belonged to Walter Hoffman Pievsky, known to the police and his friends in the underworld as the Pike. There's no doubt about this scarf being his property, Superintendent. He was wearing it when he was sent to Dartmoor ten years ago. Oh, the description tallies, does it? Exactly. It's all written down in the prison property book, even to the patch on it. Mm. So the Pike's our man. Right. Well, get him. And get him they did. And all because of a scarf, appropriately known in Cockney circles as a choker. The Pike applied his choker to a human throat. The throat of the driver of a post office van. The pike pulled the choker too hard. It was instrumental in convicting him of murder. And that's why it's earned its place here in the Black Museum. From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death, the Black Museum. In just a moment, you will hear the Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. Museum starring Orson Welles. Well, here we are in the Black Museum. 
Beyond these gray walls, the mighty roar of London never stops. But in here, it's quiet. Come with me under the freeze of death masks, the masks of criminals of bygone days, suspended grimly under the ceiling. Come. To our right and left, rows of murder exhibits, each one carefully labeled. That cut glass scent spray, it's attractive even now. I'd even take its place on Madame's dressing table till we stop and read the label written under it. Yes, it's been used to spray anesthetic over the faces of helpless women. It's a prelude to murder. No sickly aroma now, as we squeeze the bulb. Except for its grim associations, the fragile exhibit is insignificant, easily broken. But it was strong enough to hang the man who used it. There, there's a brass candlestick. Over there, a taper to go with it. Ah, here we are. Here's what we're looking for. The faded tartan scarf. As I take it out of the showcase, I ask you to come with me back to the time when this scarf was new, 15 years ago. Walter Pevsky bought it from a stallholder in one of London's famous street markets, Petticoat Lane. Yes, sir. We'll take one of the scars, mister. Right, sir! Find this worsted woven! What's your claim? Campbell's, Cameron's, MacDonald or MacLeod! All genuine tartan today down from the islands! All right, all right. I've bought it already. You don't need to give me that stuff. I'll take this one. It's the Stuart! And better than that you cannot do! Not half a nicker! Not by Bob! Half a crown and cheap at the price! Thank you very much. Come and get your Scotch chapters from Honest John Mackay. If your next wall... While Honest John continued his honest trade, the pike went about his own particular business. It was less exhausting than John's, and it was worked from a public call box. In professional circles, they called it the hospital trick. Hello? Uh, is that Mrs. Peterson speaking? Yes. The London Hospital here, Mrs. Peterson. Hospital? Why, what happened? Oh, there's no need for immediate alarm, but I'm sorry to say that your husband has met with a serious accident. Oh, Bill? Is he hurt? Oh, no, what happened? He was knocked down by a bus in the Whitechapel Road about half an hour ago. A mean, crude trick. But more often than not, it worked. While the stricken woman hurried to the hospital to find the husband, who, of course, was not hurt at all, the pike would visit her house. With the coast clear, he would help himself to whatever he could lay his hands on and get out before the bewildered woman returned. You notice that the pike could almost camouflage that accent he had. This gift gave him a confidence which was almost his undoing. One time when he and some friends were removing the entire contents of a house while the owners were away on holiday. What about the piano, Pike? Do we take that? Of course we take everything. Who'd think of moving out and leaving the piano behind, eh? <laughs> You'll get as bloopy by like you, Will. Okay, boys, piano next. Oh, crikey, the phone. Yeah, what do we do about that? Did it ring, I suppose? No. Maybe it's someone seen the van outside and checking up. I'd better answer. Yeah, yeah, go easy. Don't Mark. worry, Ed. I know my job, don't I? Oh, yeah. Hello? Is that Mr. Wilson? No, I'm awfully sorry. He won't be back until about seven o'clock. I'm his brother-in-law. Can oh, I if you? your sister's there... Oh, Julie's just gone out for half an hour. Can I take a message? Yes, I think you can. I'm her brother. Who 
the blazes are you? Quick, boys. Let's get out of here. Hold on. So the piano was left behind after all. But Pike got away with most of the household belongings and observed. Not only were his operations becoming bolder, but he had planned his action carefully. He even knew that Mrs. Wilson's first name was Julie. But he didn't know she had a brother. That must have shaken him. Because from then on, he changed his tactics. The Pike entered the motor racket. A racket which was to take him in turn from Dartmoor prison to the scaffold. But in his early days as a motor thief, there was still a trace of strange humor about his work. The padlock car was a case in point. Who's that? Okay, Eddie, you tell me me. You wouldn't go reaching for a gun when Parky walks in on you. Oh, I'm sorry, Parky, it's me nerves. Well, relax. Now, listen to me, I've got a job for you. No, no, I'm laying off for a bit. Okay, well, who pays the rent? Oh, I'm only going in for the small stuff. Well, this is a small job I'm offering you. Uh, what is it, busting into the Bank of England, eh? No, no, no. It's a simple matter of knocking off a nice new motor. Uh-huh. Well, what's the dope? And it's this way. The car belongs to a fellow named Lambert who lives at 14 Graysdyke Crescent. See? He can't get it into the garage beside the house on account of it being too big. Why didn't the mug measure it before he bought it? <laughs> well, that's not our concern. He locks the car up at night, and I've obtained the duplicate set of keys. Nice work, nice yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah, what do you want me in on the job for? You can do it yourself. Oh, there is a little complication. Oh, I thought there would be. This fellow Lambert is like a mother with a child over this car. He fixes it to a lamppost every night with two big padlocks and a double chain. Wonder he doesn't put a nappy on it. <laughs> well, what do we do? Take the lamppost as well as the car? And before I tell you, are you in with me? All right, Pike. I'm in. And listen to what I tell you. In the early hours of the following morning, the Pike and his assistant went along to Graysdyke Crescent, and there, sure enough, chained to the lamppost outside number 14, was a fine new motor car, its cellulose and chromium work glinting invitingly under the lamplight. And all we've got to do is to remove the back wheel which is chained to the lamppost. We put on the spare and we're away. Okay, Pike. Let's get cracking. The offending wheel was removed from the axle and left, still chained, to the lamppost. By the light of the helpful rays from above, the spare wheel was bolted on, the tools were replaced in the boot, and the two men climbed into the car. I hope that ignition key of yours works, Pike. Of course it works. I tried it out last night. Ah, good for you. And here we go. I told you it was going to be easy, didn't I, Ed? <laughs> <laughs> it's money for old rope. <laughs> ah, you're a good at you are, Pikey. Uh, just let me know when you need any more help. I'm your man. Walter Piewski pulled his tartan scarf snugly around his throat and agreed that he would certainly keep his assistant in mind. The car itself was taken to a garage where its numbers and appearance were carefully changed and, in due course, found its way by devious routes back to the open market. The pike, of course, had to split the profits which hurt him, so on his next job, he decided to work alone. And it was the next job which put him on the long, long walk which was to finish on the scaffold. Now, what's the number of that gouge? Ah, here it is, I've got it. This works, Park Malay. You're in the money. 
It all depends on how good I can sound on the phone. Uh, a cop in the father's voice thrust his soul. Here we go. Hello? Uh, Brins? Yes, sir. Can I help you? Uh, my name is Maurice Bluet of 17 Grandford Court. Oh, yes, sir. I know. The big block of flats in uh, Colleton Drive. Uh, that's right. I'm staying here with a friend, uh, Major General Lewis. Oh, yes, sir. He tells me that you have a new Rolls Coupe in your showroom. Yes, sir. Indeed we have. Yes. Well, I'm anxious to take such a car back to the continent with me, but... Time is pressing. Are and, uh, you at 17 Grandford Court now, sir? Yes, if someone could bring round the car, I, I should like to see it. Right, I'll, I'll be with you in a quarter of an hour, sir. Are you sure that is not too much trouble? Oh, no trouble at all, sir. Thank you very much for ringing. Thank you. I should be waiting for you. Fifteen minutes later, the car drove up to the block of flats. The driver salesman got out and went inside. Entering the lift, he went up to the third floor and knocked on the door of number 17. Needless to say, the occupier had never heard of either Maurice Bluett or Major General Lewis. But while the questions and explanations sorted themselves out, Walter Piewski was already driving the luxury car toward the garage where practiced hands were waiting to completely change its identity. First, what the Pike did not know was that he had provided the police with a vital clue and was to lead him first to prison and then, by reason of the tartan scarf, to the gallows. But the scarf was yet to earn its place, of course, among these strange exhibits here in the Black Museum. In just a moment, we will continue with The Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. We continue with The Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. We return to Walter Piewski, known as the Pike. Elated at the success of his confidence car trick, he made a handsome profit on the rolls, and despite the fact that the police subsequently traced it, they never traced the theft back to the pike, not until he tried the same operation again. Certainly he changed the district, but, as is so often the case with a regular criminal, he develops regular habits, and the routine served up to the local garage was almost exactly as before. 
playing with Sir Leslie, and he tells me you've got that straight eight in the showroom. I'm most anxious to take a car back to the continent with me, but time is pressing, and well, you see... delighted to bring the car around to you right away, sir, if that's convenient. If you're sure that it's not too much trouble. Well, no trouble at all, sir. I'll be with you in ten minutes. Oh, that is most kind. Thank you. Excellent. But you wouldn't think it was so excellent from your point of view if you knew what was happening at the garage, Pike. Hello? Give me the police. Is that Scotland Yard? Yes, information room. Listen, my name is Slater. I run a garage, uh, Carlsbrook Street, North 1. Yes, sir. A few weeks ago, the local police warned me about a car thief who worked a telephone trick, asking salesmen to take cars round to fake addresses for inspection. Just and... rung you, has he, Mr. Slater? Yeah. It might be him, or it might be genuine. But he asked me to take a car round to 21, Goldston Court, Cadimar Street. On the advice of Scotland Yard, Mr. Slater took the car to Goldston Court. To make it easier for the thief, he left the doors unlocked and went into the building. When he was safely inside, the pike left his telephone box and walked smartly over to the waiting motor. There were just two things he didn't know. First, an ignition wire had been snipped. And second, he was being watched. She'll never start until that broken wire is mended, pike. You're wasting your time. You're going to waste a lot more time, too. Seven years, to be exact. Hello, Doctor. You're having a bit of starting trouble. Hello, officer. Uh, yes, I, I don't know what's happened here. I'm used to this sort of thing, so is the other constable here. Oh, there's two of you. There's a lot more at the end of the road. Suppose you hop out of that and let us see whether we can't get the car going for you. No, I can manage. All the same, you might let us have a go for you. Okay. That's the idea. Are you the owner of this car? Hold him, George. He's got a knuckle there, sir. Let me go, you, you swamp. No, you don't. Oh, don't. Put the bracelets on him, quick. You all right, 71? Oh. How is he? Looks as if his jaw's broken, Inspector. Right. Take this man to the station. What's his name? I'm talking. Very well. I'm charging you with grievous bodily harm and resisting arrest for the attempted theft of this vehicle. There may be further charges. There were further charges, including the theft of the big rolls. Walter Piefsky, alias the Pike, had played the same game once too often, and a search of his flat in the East End produced more evidence of his varied career in crime. The policeman waiting for him to make his first mistake. This time he'd done it. At the Old Bailey, pleaded guilty to over a hundred crimes, and there were hundreds more with which he was never charged. He was sent to prison for seven years. And immediately on his reception, his personal belongings were entered in the property book. And he was wearing the tartan scarf, which later was to hang him. Silviet, grey, seven and a half, collar, sixteen, brown, one scarf, red background, green and blue stripes, white and yellow overcheck. <laughs> a can steward. Oh, how do you know that, Pisky? The fellow I bought it from in Petticoat Lane, John. Ah, I'll take his word for it. Oh, there's a small tear, five inches in one corner. Been roughly patched. Yeah, better put that down. Don't worry, boys. I won't accuse you of doing it. Don't you worry. Out. I'll be retired by then. One pair of leather gloves, size eight. One pair of black socks, ten. Brown shoes. The tartan scarf had been duly entered, and little did the retiring prison officer dream that his hastily scribbled details were to be subsequently brought up as key evidence in a murder trial. But Piefsky signed the list of his personal property, and for the next seven years he was a guest of His Majesty's government in the most famous prison in England, Dartmoor. 
But in 1946, justice had run its course. The pike was given back his personal property, which included the tartan scarf, of course, all duly signed for. So he was released upon a battle-scarred London. Time passed, and he added to his lawful wages by meager pickings from the black market. And more time passed, until one day the inspiration came to him like a bolt from the blue. He mulled over in his mind. He carried out the research, and not until the plants were cut and dry did he put Ed Javison in the picture. This is going to be the clean-up, Eddie. Yeah, what is it, Pike? We're going to stick up a post office van, see? Uh, a post office van? Shh. I've been standing in for a chap selling papers right outside a big post office in the West End. Every night I watch the mailbags coming out and going into the vans around six o'clock. Uh-huh. And the other night I hired a car and followed one. It cut through Braston News to Park Lane. Yeah, did you say you hired a car? Yes, what about it? Ah, uh, uh, never mind. Yeah, go on. Well, I had it out three nights, and I found the vans don't change their route. It's the news every time. Cuts off a bit of traffic, you see. Uh, yeah, 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 go on, go on. Now, the news are very dark. Badly bombed and no residents that I could see. Yeah, I'll get it, yeah. All we have to do is get a fast car and wait there until the last van comes through. Yeah, how many are there? Only two. We draw our car out on the path of the second one, as if we were going to back into the garage, see? Yeah. The van stops. Yeah. We fix the two men in it, fill up our car from the back, and bring the stuff back here to sort. To sort? <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> yes, yes. Here we can bring it through the back way. When do we do it? Well, I think our most profitable haul will be tonight, Friday. But what about a car? Oh, you can leave that to me. And Walter Piewski ran through to Ford. He wanted a fast car in a hurry. He applied the methods he knew. He worked the telephone trick on a young and trusting motor salesman who duly delivered a shining, high-powered limousine to a block of flats. As he disappeared into the entrance, full of expectation, the pike drove off rapidly to Braston Mews, where his partner was waiting for him. The timing was perfect. As the car stopped, the first post office van was already approaching. Keep your head down, mate. Here he comes. Won't be more than a minute or so behind. We must turn the car broadside onto it. How did you get this batter? I'll tell you later. It's hand picked, see? <laughs> and you have them in the back of the luggage. There we are. Nothing can get by now. What happens if something tries to get through before the van arrives? Oh, we make way for it and come back another night if necessary. Here, what's this? It's the van. We're going to be all right. And nobody about it. Couldn't be better. Now, get out. Yeah? Keep your chin tucked into your scarf like me. All right. Pretend to be pushing the car. All right. Watch out, Comptown. Oh, yes. Uh, afraid so. Can you give us a push? Sorry, mustn't leave the van. Oh. Well, look, in that case, I wonder if you'd like to earn yourselves ten bob, eh? If you could ring this number for us when you get to your own destination, it's... It's my garage. I'd like him to send a breakdown for you, eh? That's the idea. Oh, don't mind doing that for you. I'll do it for nothing. Oh, thanks, Sam. You're very kind. If you've got a pencil, I'll, I'll jot down my name. It's rather a difficult one. Here, here's a pencil. Oh, help! Dirty thieves! Oh, that's got the both of us. We'll start getting the bags out, quick. No, you don't. I'll shut you up, you snivelling idiot. I'm choking. This scarf. Choking me? Yeah, crap in the bag, Ed. Oh, no, here I come. What's going? You'll swing for the... Start getting the stuff in the car. Okay. 
about as much as we can take. Uh, oh, what's happened to the driver? Oh, don't worry about him. Get moving. Here. Here, look at his tongue. His eyes. You've killed him. Stop talking. Get on with the job. There's a car coming. They've got us in their headlights. It's the cops. Well, let's get out of here. Oh, tight on the corner. Keep going, they're after us. Oh, watch the traffic lights. They're red. Something's coming. Got through. Oh, I thought we'd had it. Oh, the police cars held up by the other car. But get away. I'm going to make it. Put them in. Slow up, we can't get round. Ed Javison died in that crash so mutilated that his body could not be identified. By some miracle, the pike escaped and staggered away into the shadows. But his tartan scarf was still round the throat of his victim, lying in the mews. Now let Superintendent Brandreth take up the story of the hunt. Well, the hunt was soon over. In fact, as soon as the car was reported stolen, I had a call from one of my inspectors. I thought you'd like to see this. What is it, Harrison? Oh, stolen car. Hmm? Well, well, I've checked with criminal records, sir. There was something familiar about the method, you know, calling up a garage and getting the salesman to deliver the car to a block of flats. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the list of men who practice that. Now, these two are inside at present. Yes. This one's going straight. Well, he's out of London anyway. Mm, that leaves this one, Walter Pietsky. Yes, sir. The Pike. Nowhere to find him? And he's sharing a place with a man named Javison in the East End. Right. Bring him in. Yes, sir. But before the pike was picked up for questioning about the car, his scarf was found in Branston Mews. The immunity recognizes the one which we believe Piesky had stolen. So in theory, the evidence against him was already piling up. If he was the car thief, he was probably the murderer as well. But I needed that extra piece of evidence. I called for everything that was known about him, including the list of his personal property which he had signed in prison. It was a shot in the dark, but... It yielded results. There's no doubt about the scarf being his property, Superintendent, even to the patch on it. Within 24 hours, the pike was caught. Still dazed by the car crash, he offered no resistance. In due course, he was convicted of the murder of William Price, the driver of the post office van. And at 8 o'clock, one cold morning in February, he was hanged. All because of this tartan scarf which has earned its place today in the Black Museum. Orson Welles will be back with you in just a moment. Under English law, there are no degrees of murder, and the death sentence has to be pronounced on a man or woman convicted of the crimes. Recommendations to mercy by the jury are always carefully considered. But in the case of Walter H. Piefsky, 
no such recommendation was made. The evidence against him was unshakable, and on the eve of his execution he reproached himself bitterly, not for the death of his victim or even his unfortunate partner, but for two other reasons. The supreme crime of murder had brought him no profit, and as his last hour approached, he became increasingly angry at his own forgetfulness. Ah, yes, they usually overlook something. And that's why the faded piece of tartan has earned its place here among the other exhibits in the Black Museum. Now, until we meet again in the same place for another story about the Black Museum, I remain, as always, obedient to yours. The Black Museum, the famous repository of death. Here in the grim stone structure on the Thames, which houses Scotland Yard, is a warehouse of homicide, where everyday objects, an earthenware pot, a silver shilling, a typewriter ribbon, all are touched by murder. Four small bottles, other familiar objects, medicine bottles, shining glass, cork stoppered, the labels in neat, clear handwriting. Such bottles are in the medicine cabinet of almost every home. But these were found... Found one, Inspector. Two ounce size. The others can't be far. Yes, here are two more. One ounce capacity, these. Here's the fourth. Innocent little things, aren't they, sir? Well, today, those four small bottles have a place, a very honored place, in the Black Museum. <laughs> From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death, the Black Museum. Scotland Yard's Museum of Murder. Yes, here lies death. In these hundreds and hundreds of objects, large and small, is the means to death, a thousand methods of killing, all neatly labeled to indicate who and what and where and when. There's a kitchen mop, long handled, gray with youth, gray where the red-brown stain fails to cover the grayness. Look closely at the harsh metal that binds the strings of this utensil. Yes, this blade struck, and struck again, before the mop itself removed the traces of the crime. Ah, here we are. Here's four small bottles. Three of one-ounce capacity. One holds two ounces. They mark a strange story. A story out of the Edwardian era, when man was still lord of all he surveyed, and women were just beginning to demand equality. To the ladies, Reverend, although I would prefer toasting them in something slightly stronger than tea. To the ladies, my friend. 
to listen to my husband, Reverend, who think he was old-fashioned and not an advanced thinker for this age. I, an advanced thinker? Why, Anne? <laughs> but you are, Oscar. You really are. At the risk of shocking you, Reverend, but then you're a young man and not, I assume, as easily shocked as some past is unknown. I believe a man should have two wives. <laughs> really, sir? He means it, Reverend. Listen to him. I believe a man needs two wives, one to cook, sew, and care for the household, the other to be a companion when a man needs intellectual stimulation, to lend beauty to the drawing room, and grace and wit. Then you would give the latter education. Exactly. And uh, since I am not allowed two wives, I chose the latter. You're new here, Reverend. You, you don't know that I married Anne when she was very young and sent her to Brussels and then a French university for her education before installing her here as my wife. Why, why, that's unheard of, sir. You are a pioneer in the field. Oh, yes, Mr. Oscar Stone, wholesale grocer and a man of means, was truly advanced for his age, the age of 99, and very liberal in his philosophies. In fact, he was so considerate of his wife and of the difference between her age and his own that he encouraged rather than looked askance at her companionship with the Reverend Edgar Sweet, a much, much younger man than Mr. Stone himself. Edgar, you've been a good friend to me this past month. I'm happy to hear you say so, Anne. That is why, well, I'm not hesitating to tell you something which I feel is rather unfair. Tell me what it is. Oscar has drawn his will. He's my friend, my good friend. I'd hate to see him pass on, but every man must have his house in order. Edgar, you don't understand. Making the will is all right. It, it's what he's put in it. Go on, my dear. He has left me his entire estate, provided I never marry again. That is his right, you know. It's not his right. He's afraid someone might marry me after he's gone. For the money. He's only protecting you from fortune, Hunter's end. Then why did he give me an education if he doesn't think enough of me to let me protect myself? The serpent in Eden? Perhaps. Perhaps not. But it is clear that the young lady had a will of her own and wanted to control her own destiny. In any case, the friendship ripened, not only between the two young people, but between Edgar and Oscar as well. Edgar, my friend, I'm not well. I, I saw a doctor today and I am not well. I can't believe it. You look fine. Fine. The debilitation of age. But you're not old. Well, 55 isn't old. When you worked as hard as I have for almost 50 of those 55 years. But in any case, I've decided to take a rest. Excellent, Oscar. That's what you need. An extended vacation. I've made arrangements to go to the shore. A month at the sea ought to practically, well, <laughs> rejuvenate me. <laughs> I'll miss you. Our talks have been a great stimulus to my work. And I thought that, well, even pastors have vacations occasionally. <laughs> occasionally we do. Of course. So I reserved accommodations for you, along with Anna myself. But I can't possibly afford... As my guest. You, you don't know how much I appreciate this, Oscar, but... I couldn't accept this. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were alone, Oscar. I'm glad you came in, Andy. I was telling Edgar we're going to the shore for a month. Oh, Oscar, how nice. I'm insisting that Edgar come along as my guest. 
How can I accept such an invitation? Tell him you will find him as welcome as I will, Anne. Of course I'll find him welcome, Oscar. Edgar knows that. They compromised. Edgar came for weekends. The ripening of a friendship. Or the growth of a triangle. A classic triangle. Husband, wife, and the young man. The summer ended. Oscar and Anne returned to new lodgings in Pimlico. They took an additional room. Edgar, you like it? Bookcases, a couch, a fine desk, all this room. How could I help liking it? And in here, right next door. Edgar, my boy, welcome to your new lodgings. Now, we are not only friends, we are neighbors. Really, Oscar? I don't know why you... There was more. Rather interesting. One afternoon, while Oscar was at his doctor's office. May I disturb you for a moment, Edgar? Oh, of course, Anne. What is it? Remember, months ago, I told you about Oscar's will. Uh, oh, yes, I remember. Why? He took out that awful clause. If I want to, I can marry anyone I please one day. And you were the executor. Everything was quite smooth. Quite, quite smooth. In fact, Oscar began to feel quite a bit better. At least he said so and insisted that Edgar and Anne accompany him to a horse show. Why do you love horses, though, Oscar? Perhaps because I always wanted to ride and never learned. Oh, there's a fine animal. He must be at least 16 hands high. Edgar, why don't you take Anne to the stalls to see her favorites? I'll just sit here a while. I, I guess I'm not as strong as I thought I was. Will you, Edgar, please? You think you'll be all right here alone, Oscar? It's a picture, isn't it? The elderly husband sitting on the bench watching the two young people stroll away. What are his thoughts as he sees them disappear in the crowd? What would his thoughts have been if he'd heard their conversation? I'm dreadfully worried about Oscar. He seems much better. Seashore did him good. Seems as the word. He's not. Not really. Anne, what are you telling me? That his doctor has confided to me. Oscar may not live out the year. The next morning there were signs that Anne's words might become the truth. She sent for the doctor, a youngish man named Richards, who lived some half a mile from the lodgings. I don't like this, Mrs. Stone, not at all. Oh, oh dear. You stop frightening my wife, young man. The truth, sir, is the truth. You're not well. Your stomach's in very bad shape. Then I shall prescribe for you, and your wife will see that you take your medicine, won't you, Mrs. Stone? Oh, of course, doctor. The young doctor was very certain, but not Oscar. His pain continued. Anne was obviously very upset. She took Edgar aside. Edgar, I want you to do something for me. If I can. I cannot see Oscar suffer the way he does at times. I know a way to ease his pain, but I need your help. Of course. I want you to buy him some chloroform. Chloroform? Yes. A few drops on a handkerchief and he will sleep easily. I learned about it in the practical nursing classes in Brussels. But, but Dr. Richards will get you some. No, he'll never believe I know how to use it. Here's a pound note. Please, Edgar. 
Edgar went to the nearest chemist shop. What can I do for you, Reverend? I'd like a little chloroform. Give her force. I, I understand it's good for taking out grease spots. Oh, yes, I suppose it is. But be very careful. Three more times, Edgar walked into chemist shops and bought a small amount of chloroform. Yeah, the three one-ounce bottles and the one two-ounce bottle. Out of consideration for Anne's convenience, no doubt, Edgar poured the contents of all the small bottles into a larger one and delivered the chloroform to Anne. Quite suddenly, Oscar became a whole lot better. Landlord, I want to speak with the landlord. Yes, Mrs. Stone? How can I help you? I want to prepare a surprise for my wife and the Reverend for tonight. You serve a New Year's Eve party. Some roast duck, a bit of cold ham, some good cheese, a bottle of champagne, and a bottle of good brandy. It's short notice, Mr. Stone. But I'll do my best. What'll you be eating? What everyone else eats. And <laughs> uh, will they be surprised? Oh, I'm feeling wonderful for the first time in months. And uh, for breakfast tomorrow, see if your maid can find a haddock, a large one. Oh, I feel I shall be quite hungry in the morning. Oscar wasn't hungry. New Year's morning. Oscar was dead. And today, the four small bottles which played so large a part in his death can be seen in the Black Museum. Now back to Theater of the Mind on 104.5 Chum FM. It was a sad New Year's Day for Anne Stone and a bewildering day for the Reverend Edgar Sweet. Oscar Stone, husband and friend, lay dead quite suddenly. And after what seemed an indicated quick recovery. But that was only the first event of January 1st, 1910. Onto the scene strolled an old man, Oscar's 75-year-old father. I met him at the door to the stone apartment. Oh, oh, father. Father. Yes, yes, of course. So cry all you want. I want to see my son. He, he's in here, father. All right. Who, who is this? Reverend Sweeter, our good friend and pastor. Oh, yeah. Yes, I heard about you. Oscar wrote me. This moment comes to all of us, sir. We can only pray for courage. I've got courage. What I want is facts. I, I'll see my boy now. Mm. It looks as if he died in his sleep. He did. So peacefully. I, I didn't realize it until morning. You were a good boy, Oscar. I shouldn't be out living you. And the smell around his mouth? The, the doctor said he had gastritis, Father. That's not what I smell. Are you having a post-mortem? Dr. Richards asked for permission to do one. But Richards? Who's he? The family doctor, Mr. Stone, a fine young man. All right, if he wants to do it, all right. But I want my man there with him. Father, are you insinuating? I'm not insinuating anything. I just don't like the look of this. For his own protection, Miss Richards ought to have another man present. That's all. My boys know. The second doctor arrived, and forthwith, behind locked doors, the autopsy was performed. In the landlord's parlor, Anne waited with Edgar to give her support and courage. 
pleasant till the door opened. Mrs. Stern. Yes, Dr. Richards. We are ready with our report. Did... did you find out anything? We are not certain as yet. Dr. Fletcher, your father-in-law's man, suggests Mr. Stern swallowed chloroform. Chloroform? Yes. Will you go upstairs and hear the report, please? Anne? Yes? Did you... The chloroform I bought for you, that is... It's still in its bottle, Edgar. Don't worry, you don't even have to mention it. Shall we go upstairs? The two young people went upstairs, but not hand in hand. There was a sudden reserve between them. In the room where the doctors and old Mr. Stone awaited them. This is Dr. Fletcher, my daughter-in-law, and Pastor Sweet. How do you do? As Dr. Richards was in charge of the case, perhaps he's the one to give you our official report. Oh, please do, Dr. Richards. It's a simple report. We are unable to find any natural cause of death. The contents of the stomach are suspicious. We're holding them for the coroner. Oh. Have you any particular suspicions, gentlemen? None which we care to state officially. You realize the room where death occurred must be sealed and its contents must not be touched. Oh, my, my purse is in there. It'll have to stay there. Well, surely I may have my coat and, and, and a hat. I assume so. If Dr. Fletcher's present when you remove them. Anne went to stay with a cousin, a brief train journey away. The coroner's inquest was held and adjourned, pending a full report from a government analyst. That was all. But Edgar dispatched a note to Anne, and she met him as he requested in a quiet tea room in Pimlico. Edgar, what's the matter with you? You haven't looked me straight in the eye since we met today. I can't seem to help myself. Anne... Dr. Richards did tell you that Oscar might not live out the year. Of course he did. It came so suddenly. They've all behaved so strangely. And I'm afraid I'm finished. If this develops into anything, I shall lose my pulpit. If you don't do anything foolish, I certainly won't. Everything's going wrong. I, I feel as if... And I bought that chloroform. If there is chloroform in the autopsy report... Anne, don't you see? Forget the chloroform. Forget all about it. I can't. Where is it? What did you do with it? I took it with me when I left the apartment. Right in my coat pocket, under the nose of my dear father-in-law. I poured it out of the train window. Then I threw the bottle away. Oh, that makes it worse. If they proved that Oscar was... What? Don't you see? You trace the chloroform to me. In other words, Edgar... You're implying that I gave it to us. I'm not implying anything of the kind. What else are you saying? Edgar, you helped me over a bad time. Now I think it will be best if we do not see each other anymore. Goodbye, Edgar. The lady was annoyed, perhaps rightly so. The young man was frightened, very rightly so. In their separate ways, each awaited the report of the government analyst. At long last, Dr. Richards came to the young widow. The news could be a lot worse, Mrs. Stone. They could have found arsenic or one of the slower, more common poisons. What have they found, Doctor? Poisoning by chloroform. <gasps> oh, Doctor, that is the worst. How so? Don't tell me you had some in your possession. I did. I had my reasons. Doctor... My married life was not happier. I am young. He was old. Practically my father. 
He kept putting me in Edgar's company. I began to... When two people are together constantly, I... <laughs> Please go on, Mrs. Stone. I... I obtained the chloroform. I kept it in a drawer. But I'd never had a secret from Oscar. Never. On any score. So uh, on New Year's Eve after our party, I, I told him I had it and where it was. He spoke to me sadly, but kindly, grieved that I'd been feeling about him as I did. Then he went to sleep. Or I thought he did. The next I knew, he was dead. Did you look at the bottle? Yes, I, I couldn't tell how much was gone. I took the bottle and I, I poured what was in it from the train as I... The autopsy report came to Edgar as well. He wrestled with himself and finally took the only course which seemed open. Inspector Seward? Yes, come in, sir. Sit down. Thank you. I understand you have some information in the matter of the death of Oscar Stone. I do. You see, I bought the chloroform. He should be in here somewhere, Sergeant. If the little parson is telling the truth, I'm sure he is. Let himself in for something with that woman, didn't he? <laughs> it looks that way. Leave it to a woman every time. Grease spots, eh? <laughs> Not bad for an amateur. I suppose this is the gorse patch where you said he threw those small bottles. Yes, this is the place. I found one, Inspector. Two ounce size. So the others can't be far. Yes, here are two more. One ounce capacity, these. Here's the fourth. Innocent little things, aren't they, sir? Anne Stone, I have a warrant for your arrest on the charge of willful murder of your husband. Edgar Sweet, I have a warrant for your arrest. You stand charged as an accessory before the fact in the murder of Oscar Stone. The trial took place at the next assizes. Gentlemen of the jury. The Attorney General, who has this case in hand, with full knowledge of the facts, will present no evidence against the Reverend Mr. Sweet. You are therefore directed to find him not guilty, and I shall order his release at once. Edgar Sweet left the courtroom, a much wiser young man. The trial of Anstone proceeded and rested entirely on the medical evidence. Dr. Fletcher, you have described yourself as an expert in criminal toxicology. We have accepted you as such. Is that correct? It is, sir. Very well. Now, I call the particular attention of the jury to the answers you will give to these questions, as they will have great bearing on the evidence against my client. First, sir, have you ever known of a recorded case of murder by liquid chloroform? No. Is there any record, to your knowledge, of the forcible administration of this liquid, of anyone pouring it down a victim's throat? There is not. If the victim were sleeping, for instance... The burning would waken him. It'd probably go down his windpipe, not his gullet. And there would be burns, clearly visible after death. There would be. Then, in your expert opinion, Dr. Fletcher, is it impossible to commit murder by liquid chloroform? Nothing's impossible. But it's highly improbable. Thank you, Doctor. That is all. 
The chief witness of the Crown, Dr. Fletcher, had given his testimony. All that remained in the opinion of the defending counsel was to create a, a reasonable doubt in the minds of the jury. He called no witnesses that spoke for six hours, summing up. In essence, he said... Oscar Stone was a loving, if elderly, husband. He felt his life was over. Remember, he was an eccentric who believed in having two wives. Can we say that this man, who had given so much to his sweet young wife, was not prepared to give her the greatest gift of all, her freedom? Once he knew that Claudiform was in the house, could he not have taken it himself? and passed quickly into the coma which ended in death. And if he gave this lovely girl freedom, are you who sit in judgment to do any less? The judge was clear, if somewhat caustic in his charge to the jury. There have been sweet faces which hid guilty consciences before. When a young wife and a young man are thrust into daily contact by a doting husband, strange events have a way of taking place. All this is true, but one salient remains. You may find this woman guilty as charged only if no reasonable doubt exists in your minds that she did commit the crime of which she stands. The jury deliberated for over two hours. There were 12 solemn men when they filed back into the jury box. Handstone rose to face them. The clerk asked for the verdict. The foreman rose and spoke clearly. We have considered the grave suspicions in this case, but find no evidence that would indicate who administered the poison to the victim. We find the accused, therefore, not guilty. But despite that perhaps surprising verdict of not guilty, the four famous small bottles can be seen today in the Black Museum. No double jeopardy. That's an ancient English law, no double jeopardy. One cannot be tried twice for the same offense. It was felt, therefore, that since Anne Stone had been acquitted, if she had committed this crime, she ought to tell the world how it had been done. But no. All that was heard thereafter from Anne Stone was a letter addressed to her defending counsel, read as follows. Dear Sir Edward, I feel I owe my life to your earnest effort. I have not been a good woman, and my temptations have been terrible. But though I have not kept my vows, you will judge me mercifully. And there the case rests. Now until we meet next time, in the same place, I tell you another story about the Black Museum. I remain, as always, obediently yours. Just wow. Both of today's episodes were quite twisty. The first story had me thinking, ugh, what a crook, getting released and then right back into it. But karma creeped up on this guy and, at the horrible loss of a life, his life was locked away forever. I'm not really sure though if the balancing of scales happened there, but nonetheless, that was how the story went. 
and the second tale involving chloroform and legal deception. I expected the wife to actually kill her friend and disappear, but she was able to evade the law completely. I also had no idea that chloroform would burn. I mean, I knew it wasn't as effectively quick as the movie show, but had no idea it would burn the esophagus. Also, this particular tale is one of the few where the law doesn't catch up to the criminal. In fact, I can't remember any episode ending like this, so it's quite unique. Speaking of unique, you lot, thank you all for listening, mates. If you have a couple of seconds spare, swing on by my iTunes page and leave a review. It means the world to me every single time someone does. Plus, it puts me in touch with more people like you, and that's an opportunity that I can't pass up. Have a fantastic day or night, mates. And as always, till next we meet.